take that Bible, look back over to the book of James, James chapter 1, and we're going to finish that section up in James 4, 8 through 10, on worldliness, its cause, and its cure. In fact, let me, as you're turning to James chapter 4, read verses 4 through 10, just to set that paragraph as we sit underneath the Word of God this morning and are desirous of obeying Him. 4-4, follow along. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. I mean, the scriptures are clear when you think about our calling to holiness as believers. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.15, he said, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. We're called to be a holy people. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, he said there that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And the word for sanctification is simply another word for holiness. He's not called us to be impure. He's called us to be sanctified or holy. Of course, it says this Paul in Philippians 2, 15, where he said to you and to the church there at Philippi, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. This is the call of Scripture, that we're to be blameless, we're to be innocent, we're to be holy, we're not to be impure, but we're to live in sanctification. Of course, it couldn't be any clearer in 2 Corinthians six fourteen when Paul would say to us, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have, has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 at the end, he said, come out, From, he said, their midst, and be separate, says the Lord. And so we're called to be separate. And yet you come into this passage in 4.4, and what a stinging rebuke. He says to the people to whom he writes, you adulterous people. I mean, ouch, it is just a stinging, stinging rebuke. 
Now, as we're following this argument, he comes to the eighth feature that we're looking at, that our faith is tested in relation to worldliness. And it runs from 4, verse 1, down through 10, and we'll finish that argument today. And what he does in showing us this test and our reaction to worldliness is he exposes the deadly danger of worldliness, and then he develops a gracious cure to overcome it. And we find ourselves not in the deadly danger. We looked at that the first week. We're here at that second feature, the gracious cure. But we said that there's a deadly danger to worldliness for two reasons there in the notes. It severs our relationship with God, number one, because we said that he's called us into a covenant relationship. And when you, when you go against that covenant in 4.4, he said, you adulterous people. You're severing that covenant that was made in relationship with God. He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so the deadly danger of it is it severs that relationship that God has made to us and that we have made to God. But secondly, we noted there that it provokes the jealousy of God in verse 5. And so it looks quite appalling when you see the sin. But as you get to verse 6, down through 10, he begins to offer the victory for overcoming worldliness and the, the way and the path to that victory is God's grace. Look at verse 6. He says there to us, to those caught in that sin, whether you're caught in the sin of worldliness this morning, or you may be counseling someone who is in that sin and doesn't know how to get out of it, you'll note that James says in 4.6 that he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Now that phrase there in verse 6 God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble as a quotation out of Proverbs 3.34. And that's exactly what it says. And so here the cure, if you will, to worldliness is God's grace. The antidote to a worldly lifestyle is God's grace. You might say the, the antibiotic that you need to fight this world in which you live is God's grace. It's an incredibly hopeful verse. In fact, verse 6 must be one of the greatest statements in all of the Scripture, that he gives more grace, that whatever you need to live this Christian life, to live holy, to live a life of sanctification, God is going to give you more grace. Now, we established weeks ago that that's not saving grace. This is sanctifying grace, that he's going to provide you with what you need to be a godly man. He's going to provide you what you need to be a godly woman. He's going to provide you, mothers, the strength you're going to need to raise these little ones in the 21st century. He's going to help you, high school student, junior high student, to live a holy life before him. And the answer to it is he's going to provide you all the grace that you need. Okay? So here's the gracious cure. And then I noted last week, as we begin to follow that argument of God's grace, in verses 7 through 10, in the language, there are 10 imperative commands that, if obeyed, will cure worldliness. In other words, it will put you on that right track. 
Now, I have placed these ten commands around four biblical principles that allow grace to flourish in your life. And for the sake of just organization, I've titled these four grace principles. And so there's a word of hope. I mean, this is a hard message. But it is a word of hope. It's a word of comfort. It's the antidote to worldliness, the cure for it. And we touched on the first one last week. The first grace principle is in verse 7. You remember that. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. In other words, if you want to be pleasing to God and you want to remain in James 1.27 unstained by the world, then here's what you need to do or the people that you're counseling need to do is line themselves underneath to God, underneath God. You'll note it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Place yourself underneath God. We mentioned last week or two weeks ago that it's a military word. And so here, submission to God is our entire being under the authority, and the direction of God. And so I just would ask you this morning, is God your commanding officer, if you will? And as you submit to God, God's grace will graciously come to you. And so he said, submit to God. And then in that call, in that first grace principle on the command to submit, he said, resist the devil. And then the accompanying promise is that he will flee from you. And so he provides greater grace, greater grace than our selfishness, greater grace than our sinfulness to take control. And it obviously is a work of the Holy Spirit. So now let's dive into where we left off the second grace principle. The first one was a a command to submit. But the second grace principle is a call to worship. And rather than loving the world, or becoming, having an affair with the world in that language, look at the the text in verse 8. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, it is a grace principle, and it is a command, and it's a call to worship here. And the command here calls for a radical return to the God we love. It's a call to to worship. Now, he says there, and you can see it in verse 8, draw near to God. Now, we would acknowledge this morning that apart from Christ, no one can draw near to God. It is only through Christ that Paul said in Ephesians 2.13, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the only way you can ever draw near to God is through the blood of Christ. In fact, Peter said it in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, so that he might bring us to God. So as you come to God, you come through Christ, and you're brought, you who were far off, into an intimate relationship. Now here, he's calling evidently, a group of worldly people to not only submit to God, but he gives them a call to worship. And he says to you and to my own heart, draw near to God. Now, it's interesting when you study this, it is a rich biblical word. And it's often used, this phrase, to draw near to God in the Old Testament. 
And it was used, if in your mind you think that way, of, of priests who were approaching God in worship. In fact, there's three verbs here, if you will. In fact, look at it in verse 8. He says, draw near to God. He'll say secondly in verse 8, cleanse your hands. And then thirdly, he'll say in verse 8, purify your hearts. In fact, all three verbs, draw near, washing of hands, and the purifying of heart, were used in worship. In other words, as you look back in the Old Testament, particularly, but not exclusively, the priest would be coming before God. The priest, in carrying out their duty, if you will, in the temple, would be drawing near. In fact, I think it's going to come up on the screen. Do you remember this with Nadab and Abihu? where it says Nadab and Abihu took their respective, or the sons of Aaron, each took the, his censer and put fire in it and laid it uh, on, the, on it and offered unauthorized fire. Unauthorized fire was the word in the NASB for strange fire, which was the theme of that conference back in the fall. But they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to them, Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those, now you'll notice that phrase, who are near me. The NASB says, among those who draw near me, I will be sanctified. Simply another word to say, I will be holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, we're not exactly sure what took place in the temple that day. But Nadab and Abihu were in the temple. And they were working there at the altar, getting preparing for that offering that would be given. And in their fire pans, they mixed some kind of strange fire. And on the spot, the Lord consumed them. And they died on the spot because they offered, as it says there, unauthorized fire. Why? Because those who draw near me, I will be sanctified. In other words, as you come into worship, as you draw near to God, it's a a call to worship. And he says to those, listen, if you're fighting the sin of worldliness, you need to not only the call to submit to God, if you will, but you need here the second grace principle, this call to worship as you come near to Him, you need to come near and be holy. I'm thinking of another statement. I think it's right there on the screen. This one is often quoted in the New, in the New Testament, but it comes out of Isaiah 29, 13. This people, and he's talking about the nation of Israel, There's our word, draw near. There's that aspect of worship and drawing near. But they draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So in other words, they worshiped in the Old Testament. They drew near, but there was a way that you needed to draw near. There was a way that you needed to come into the presence of God. As you're holding your Bible there, this principle gets carried over into the New Testament. Look back just a few pages in the book of Hebrews. Let me show you this. I was very interested. And so here, when you think about drawing near, you say, well, Scott, what does it precisely mean? It's to hear God, if you will, to be close to God, to be in relationship with God. 
But here in Hebrews chapter 4, watch this. And certainly you've seen these, these thoughts before on drawing near. Remember when it's talking about the great priestly work of Christ. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest in 415 who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, and here's the phrase, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a petition there by the writer that because of the work of Christ and because of what he's done in his high priestly work, we're to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's an invitation to us. But look over in Hebrews, if you will. Just turn over to chapter 7, verse 19. And again, he's talking about the, the great priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ compared to Melchizedek. And he says in Hebrews 7.19, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, and it's speaking of Christ, through which we, what? Draw near to God. It's captured in that the, the words and the phrases of a call to worship. And it's through Christ that we draw near. Look down in chapter 7 at verse 24. It says there of Christ that he holds his, priestly, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, consequently is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here I think we just acknowledge that the only way that we could ever come into the presence of God is the work of Christ on our behalf. Turn right just a little bit more. Look over at Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 19. Still speaking of the work of Christ. Therefore, brothers, in 1019, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, here it is, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's capturing that language, but he talks about drawing near with a sincere heart. I mean, I just think for a moment, though, the utter privilege that you and I have as believers to draw near to God. I mean, you look back in the Old Testament, Queen Esther risked her life by approaching King Ahasuerus without invitation, and she was his, what, wife. So afraid was she to come into the presence without being invited, she risked her life. But with God, here, we have confident access through faith in Christ to draw near, okay? And so here is this this desire to follow after God, to hear His Word, to obey His Word, and to act on His Word. And if you do so... 
Look at the promise. Go back now to the book of James. If you draw near to God, think of our theme in worldliness here. He will what? Draw near to you. If you go to God in humility, he will welcome you. He will restore you. And so I would ask, are there any prodigals who are lost? Return to him. But here's this principle here. He will give you more grace, but you must first, what? Draw near to him. And then he will, what? Draw near to you. So often, we desire the promise before the command. Here in this call to worldliness, there is an absolute, if you will, command to submit. It is followed up with a call to worship, to draw near to him, to come to him. And then he will fulfill that promise by coming near to you. And again, James almost picks up the language of a prophet. I'm thinking of Malachi 3.7, where it says, You have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. And Malachi 3.7 says, Return to me and I will return to you. Now, he's giving the cure to worldliness, is he not? There's some things that are supplied by his grace, these imperatives that you must do. But you might ask, how do I draw near to God? How do I return to God? Well, the the text will answer that. Because as you draw near to God, put your nose back in the book. Look what it says. He says, cleanse, and I'm in James 4, 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, this is an incredible analogy in the Old Testament here. He says, as you draw near, you need to come, Grace Church of the Valley, with clean hands. Okay? He's all in the call to worship. You need to come into his presence with a pure heart. Now, again, as you look back in the Old Testament, the priest, remember, when they would go before the Lord, they had to ritually, and I'm talking physically, wash their hands before they approached God. In fact, in Exodus 30, verse 19, it just says this, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it, then they shall enter the tent of meeting so that they will not die. I mean, these priests, as they were going for their duties, had to draw near to God, but as they came, ritualistically, they would have to physically wash their hands before they entered the tent of meeting, so they would not die. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire and were consumed on the spot. These priests, before they went into offer, had to physically wash their hands. But Grace Church of the Valley, hands, these hands in the Scripture, also referred to as instruments of sin. In fact, I think this is on the screen in Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, I think that's just physically in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Here's why. Your hands are full of blood. They're covered with blood. In other words, their hands were instruments of sin. 
So the hands spoke of what the priest had to do, but there's a greater principle that God said, I can't hear your prayer, and even though you put your hands up, I can't hear you. I think sometimes even when I, when I see people, especially when I'm at a, a concert or I'm at some rally and I see everybody raise their hand and I, you know, I don't, whatever, can't always know the condition of their heart, but I wonder if those young people are living that way every week. I'm wondering if their hands are instrument of righteousness. Here, Isaiah indicted the people because their hands were covered in blood. Certainly, you remember Grace Church of the Valley, that tremendous psalm in Psalm 24. You probably could recite it with me. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Here it is. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean what? hands and a pure heart. In other words, this is a cure to worldliness. It's bound up in God's grace. There's a command to submit, but there's a call to worship. And as you draw near, you're drawing near here, it says, with clean hands and with a pure heart. That's the one who will ascend to the hill of the Lord. That's the one who will stand in his holy place. I'm thinking of David early in his life in Psalm 18, verse 20, where he said, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. In other words, David was looking at that time in his life saying, God has blessed me because my hands were not the instrument of sin. He goes on to say this in the next scripture, Psalm 26, 6, I wash my hands, using that expression of the priest, but I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. In other words, my hands, they're innocent. I'm thinking of Job in 17, 9, that he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. Listen, beloved, God's not messing around here. And I just think in our day, it's so trivial, so much of our worship, so much of our Christianity, so much of our worldliness. And he says, listen, here's a, me- listen, here's a means of grace. Get underneath God. And as you come before him and worship, draw near to him. But when you come to him, come with clean hands. Come with a pure heart. Paul told this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8. Remember when he hit that section there? And he said, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy, what? Hands. Because the hands were the instruments of sin. He says, pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath is the thought. And so then he says, look at back at the text. He says, cleanse your hands. He says, you what? Sinners, he calls us. Now, again, there's some question. And I listened to an argument by one scholar who basically, remember when I said this is a, he said this is how someone comes to Christ. He built a whole argument here that you're talking, you adulterous people, these are people that James says don't even know Christ. And, and I think there, there could be truth to that. And so here's how you come to Christ. Submit to God. Here's how you come to Christ. Resist the devil. Here's how you come to Christ. Draw near to God. But I think, listen, that, would, that, that could be. 
the truth. But I think the truth is, I think James is talking to us. And I think he's talking to you. And I think at this point, rather than calling us brothers, he calls us sinners. And then the argument of one was, at no place in the scripture is ever a Christian called a sinner. And every place, and the argument is great, it'll take you 10, 15 places where you're going to find that sinner is in the context of someone who doesn't know God, and it's true. But then in my mind, it pops Paul, when at the end of his life, he said, I am the chief of what? Sinners. He still identified himself as a saved sinner, but he was a sinner. And he said, I'm the chief of them. It could be that he's speaking directly to you. He could be saying to a group of worldly people, Listen, here's a command to submit and here is a call to worship. But when you draw near, you come with clean hands. And whereas the hands are often used in what I would say is an external defiling deeds. He said you come and you must come with clean hands, but you must also come internally with a pure, what, verse 8. He says, purify your hearts. Do you remember when... I mentioned last week, a couple weeks ago, when David had sinned with Bathsheba, right? He had sinned in a, in a way that just dishonored the Lord. And remember, he wrote those two Psalms, Psalm 32. And then he wrote Psalm 51. And you remember after he sinned, when he was finally brought to the point of confession, you know it, he said in Psalm 51, create in me a clean what? hearts, oh God. Why? Because he recognized that my sin is ever before you. And Lord, in other words, he's saved, he's redeemed, but his heart became crusty and his heart became impure. So as he's praying, Lord, wash me, purify me, he says to create in me a clean heart, oh God. That's his grace. He may be saying that to you this morning. Listen, beloved, the essence of worldliness is defiled hands and a divided heart. And God's word is pleading with us to surrender our hands and to surrender our hearts to undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. But you'll note what he says. Look again at the text. He says there, he says, purify your hearts, you what? You double-minded, double-minded. Now, you've seen that word before. Just glance back a couple pages. Remember James 1.8 and the whole context of trials? When it says for that, if you're going to ask, ask in faith in 1.6, verse 7. For that person, if he doesn't ask in faith, will not receive anything from the Lord. And here's why he won't receive anything in 1.8. He is a double-minded man. You say, what do you mean double-minded? Well, he's vacillating. Vacillating between what? Vacillating in the trial. Well, vacillating how? He's vacillating if he should trust God in the midst of it. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your what? Faith. He's testing your faith. And you find yourself in the midst of a trial, and you want to trust God, but you want to trust your flesh. And so you end up, in some cases, torn. God's bringing this trial to test your faith, to strengthen your faith, but you're not sure you can trust God in the midst of your faith, in the midst of the trial, and so you become double-minded. 
Now you've got people here later in chapter 4 who have become double-minded. Now the Greek word is funny there. Maybe you remember it. It's dipsukos, okay? Just sukos, Saul. Saul, right? Dip or die is just two. So here you've got somebody where it says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, you're double-faced is what James is saying. You're double-hearted is the thought. And possibly some to whom he writes, but that'd be easy, some to whom I speak, okay, are a friend of the world and a friend of God all at the same time. You become double-minded. And so he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan talked on this guy. Who? You say who? The double-minded. And in his book, he called this guy, do you remember? Mr. Facing Both Ways. You got a foot in for the world and a foot in for the things of God. I'm thinking of Isaiah. So Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let him return to the Lord and He will have compassion on him. I love that. He abundantly pardons. All of this, beloved, is a means of grace for us, is it not? He's just saying, listen, if you get caught in it, you may become so overwhelmed and so discouraged and you're not sure what the cure is. Here's the cure. Submit to God. Here's the cure. He says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And as you draw near to Him, come and cleanse your hands and purify your heart. You say, well, Scott, I, I, um, I have dirty hands. I have a remote that I don't control. I don't know. I have a mouse that I can't contain. Listen, how are you going to come back to him? By his grace, by his grace. So here's what's amazing. He's going to give you more grace. He's going to give you the grace you need to live holy before him. But at the same time, he provides the grace. He gives you the commands to obey, submit to God. And here there's a call to worship. But there's a third grace principle. Look, it's a catalyst to repentance, I call it. Okay, a command to submit, a call to worship, a catalyst to repentance. That's the word catalyst is a chemistry word, right? It talks about a substance, right? A, a substance that causes or accelerates a chemical reaction. And here's what we need is we need a catalyst to repentance. Look at verse 9. You know, and I take it as, as hopeful, but it's, it's strong. Be wretched and mourn. And weep, wretched, mourn, and weep. All three words were used in the Old Testament by the prophets to describe what should be the remorse over sin. And I'm thinking here just one, Joel 12, 2. Return to me, the prophet said, with all your hearts. There's that heart. He said, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, remember when they would, if something bad happened, they'd rip their garments. 
they tear them, they throw sackcloth. You know, that was an actual physical sign of repentance, but sadly it became an external sign, and so they'd rip their garments. And here Joel 2.12 says, Return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, weeping, mourning, and rend your hearts. He's talking about repentance here. Here's the cure for worldliness is repentance. And he gives these three verbs that stand out as a catalyst for it. Look, look at them in verse 9. I'll just touch on them. Be wretched, number one. What is that? It is an inner feeling of shame because of sin. In fact, Paul used that word. Remember in 724, wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death. So to be wretched is a feeling of shame because of the sin. And when you see your sin for what it is, it produces misery. It produces a sense of wretchedness. It is a feeling of wretchedness that grows out of a deep awareness of your sin. I think all of us have, well, some more than others, have seen the, the events of the Los Angeles Clippers with their owner and his horrific comments and his prejudice particularly towards Hispanic and African-American people. But what's been noticeably absent in all the news is never once has he ever, what, apologized. In fact, I saw on the news the other day that he was sorry that he told that girl he should have just paid her off. Amazing. Never ever in his heart does sin ever reach it. In fact, for the believer, forget him. There ought to be, when we sin, a repentance. And here, it's that first, that inward feeling of shame. And that inward shame then is to be accompanied by an outward expression of the next two commands. Look at them in verse 9. He says, to mourn and to weep. Mourn is a deep grief, an outward sorrow, if you will. It's often the type of grief that cannot be concealed. In other words, this mourning in in the biblical language, it takes possession of your entire being. He says you ought to be wretched, and it turns here to this inward or outward expression of this command to mourn. And then he says to weep, and obviously weep is a tearful outward expression of mourning. And here it's a weeping because of sin and the shameful behavior of worldliness. Hey, j- just for a moment, I-, I was just thinking, how many churches, and, and I don't mean to, I don't want to sound in any way prideful, but every language today, much of it, is around the theme of celebration, is around the theme of feeling good, is around the theme of I want you to be encouraged. And we understand that. Our ministry should be proactive. But listen, there's a time in the scripture here on this catalyst to repentance where there is sin with the hands and sin with the heart that you come before God and you feel a wretchedness over it. You feel this this inward, outward battle of the mourning and the weeping. And I think it's illustrated in Peter's shame when he denied the Lord and he remembered that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
And it says after he did that, he went out and he wept, what? Bitterly. Imagine that. Imagine Peter. And I remember he was in the courtyard. And at one point in the Gospels, he turned and his eyes saw the Savior. And when that rooster crowed, he went out and wept bitterly. But Judas wept. But evidently it wasn't the the repentance and the sorrow that leads to repentance because his conclusion was different than Peter's. And so I would just say to you, when was the last time you were miserable? When was the last time you felt wretched? And I'm not just saying that, just, you know, I just want you to feel bad. And you wept and you mourned over your sin of, in this context, worldliness. You know, I don't want to be a hammer to you. But it just, I I mean, I'm just thinking, if you're counseling someone and they're in sin, here's the cure. You tell them, get underneath God. You draw near to him. And he's going to draw near to you. But when you come, you might need to ask him to cleanse your hands and to purify your heart. And then you need to repent over your sin of worldliness. And again, remember we said weeks ago, worldliness isn't probably what you think and what comes to first place in my mind. Worldliness is when you can't control your tongue. Worldliness is when you can't get along with people. Worldliness is when selfish ambition drives your relationships. Worldliness is in chapter 4.1 when you fight and quarrel. Worldliness is when you become a respecter of people in James 2, 1 through 13, and you treat people different based on their associations or based on their color or based on their status. That's worldliness. Worldliness is not when you remain unstained from the world, but when you get stained by the world. Worldliness is when you don't care for widows. It's when you don't care for orphans. That's what worldliness is in this context. So look what he says in 4.9. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And again, we know that the Lord and Paul said rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. But the joy that Paul speaks about is the joy that comes when we realize our sins are forgiven in Christ. The joy James warns about is the fleeting and superficial joy that comes when we indulge in sin. He says, if that's the case, verse 9, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Listen, let me put it this way. Mourning over your sin is a blessing. You say, how could that be? Well, you remember the Beatitudes. Did not our Lord say, blessed are those who, what? Mourn, for they shall be, what? Comforted. This is an upside down world we live in with truth. The world would say, don't mourn over your sin. Look over your sin. Don't ever apologize. Don't ever repent. Feel good about yourself. Wake up every day and say, I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. That's what Bob did on What About Bob? He just repeated every day. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. That's what the world would say. Jesus would say, blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be what? comforted. It's an upside-down theology. Jesus said in Luke 6.21, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. If you weep now over your sin, there's coming a day when you'll laugh. But the opposite is true when you think of worldliness. Luke 6.25, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall 
mourn and weep, those tables will be reversed. So here, God's grace is available. There's a command to submit, a call to worship, and a catalyst to repentance. And fourth and finally, okay, here's the fourth grace principle. It's wonderful. It's verse 10. He comes all the way in his argument. He says, humble yourselves, 410, before the Lord, and he will what? Exalt you. I say he comes all the way around. In verse 6, he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And now he says to you on this fourth grace principle, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here, recognize your desperate need before a holy God. It is before him that you're to humble yourself. And he's so in contrast here to the selfish ambition and the pride that mark our conflicts with one another. And he says, as you humble yourselves, as you get underneath the Lord. And I think the the command here is passive, interesting. It's not to be understood as you actively humbling yourself, but you admitting your condition and your need of the Lord. And as you humble yourself before the Lord, look at the promise in verse 10. He will, what? Exalt you. It's the picture of one prostrate before a monarch, if you will, begging mercy before this monarch. And the monarch leans down from the throne, if you will, and lifts the petitioner's face from the dust. Here, what James says is, listen, as you humble yourselves before the Lord, he is going to exalt you. He is going to lift you up. I'm thinking of that humility pictured in Jesus' parable of of the one who was deeply conscious of his sin. Remember the publican in Luke 18 where he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You remember that? And response, the Lord declared this to that man. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. That's Luke 18. It says to the younger men in 1 Peter 5, 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I like what Isaiah says in 66, 2, to this one I will look to him who is humble and who is contrite and who trembles at my word. Listen, when we're humble before God, to this one I will look. So watch this. He opposes the proud, but to this one my eye will be upon, the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. It says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Listen, this is that that call, if you will, that charge to humility, that as you're humble before the Lord, he will revive you. It says this in Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the Lord, it says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. He said, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Listen, Here's a charge to humility. Listen, you can tell somebody this. You can counsel somebody. You can counsel your own heart. He calls us to be a humble people. He calls us here to humility. He calls us to die to our self. Listen, I, one time, and I'm all done here, 
But I remember walking in John MacArthur's office one time. I wasn't in trouble. I just had to go ask him a question. And on this desk, it was a powerful word on humility. And I thought I would leave it with you because I think this capsulates verse 6 and verse 10. And it just was in a little plaque, and I don't think he wrote it. It was some, somebody's words, though. It says, that, and I'm thinking about you and, and me and our relationships. It says, when you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught, and you sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy, being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, and you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendation when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. And when you can see your brother prosper and his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God, while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. And when you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, you can humbly and, and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart. That is dying to self. Amen? May God give us that grace.